This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. On Money Talks, we discuss money news and take your questions about personal finance. For 15 years, we've provided free financial information for Mississippians. I hope you can join me, Dr. Nancy Lotridge-Anderson, co-host of Money Talks, Tuesdays at 9 a.m. or anytime on our podcast. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, and since I'm not in the studio this morning, we are re-airing some recent phone calls with your medical questions. Uh, I get this question a lot about, you know, when we think about some of the main things to keep you healthy and whether or not you have chronic medical conditions, one of them that's most more common ones is how much water should I drink in a day? Um, and it's it, although it's a simple question, it may be complex depending on what kind of issues that you have. But generally speaking, if we talk about the entire population, you know, there was a campaign, oh, decades ago that said drink eight ounces, eight glasses of eight ounces each a day, so 64 ounces a day of water. Um, if you get more, you know, if you want to get really technical about that, you can calculate it out. But water is very important. It makes up about 70% of the body by weight, um, and it can be a little bit different depending on the, the constituents of the different tissues that you have, but that's that's sort of a general um, estimate of that. Um, and it does lots of things. It can help you get, it helps to get rid of waste from your body through urination, through perspir- uh, perspiration, through bowel movements. Um, it, it helps with temperature regulation. A lot of tissues... Uh, will not function without the presence of water. Every cell in our body has water as a component to it. It does protect sensitive tissues too. The brain, for instance, has cerebrospinal fluid that has water as a component. It's not the only component, but it sort of floats and with the little tethers to the meninges uh, that help to uh, hold it in place and to cushion it. So lack of water can affect all of these processes, and it can be small amounts over time or large amounts all in one sitting. So if you don't have enough water, that sort of dehydration is the general term for that. So the question about how much water do you need, if you're a man, typically it'd be about a little over three and a half liters of fluid a day. So if you think about a two-liter bottle of something, that's about 15 and a half cups for men. It's a little bit less for women, so it's about 11 and a half cups or 2.7 liters for women. Uh, but that's the recommendation. And we have to keep in mind that about 20% of the water that we intake comes from our food. Um, so the rest comes from things that we drink. And water is certainly a great way to uh, to ingest that, just plain old water. Uh, but there's other things that you can get, you know, certainly other foods that have a lot of uh, have a lot of water content to them, like watermelon, spinach. They have a lot of water content. If you exercise more, particularly aerobic activities and the environment that you do that in, like outside, particularly in the south. Um, that certainly you might need more water needs than that a day, depending on the activity and what you're doing. Uh, your overall health can modulate that as well. So if you're if you're 
uh, if you have a, a GI bug and you've got vomiting or diarrhea with that, you're going to lose more water than you normally would. So that may change how much of your water needs you, you need on a daily basis. Uh, pregnancy and, and breastfeeding also, we talked about that a little bit earlier in a different context, but that can modulate that as well. And then there's all kinds of medical con conditions that sometimes may limit the amount of water that you have. Chronic kidney disease, particularly if you're on dialysis, there are water restrictions for that. Uh, congestive heart failure is another one. So there are some things that you uh, may want to, you, you definitely need to consult with your physician about that, about what the adequate amounts of water are. But um, generally speaking, though, if you stick to that eight glasses a day of eight ounces a piece, that's about the amount that you would need unless you've got some other restrictions. Um, but that can help you stay hydrated and uh, can certainly uh, keep you going. We're going to go to Tom and Brandon. Good morning, Tom. Several months ago, I'd say about three months ago, uh, playing golf, uh, about halfway through the round, I found myself in what they call the rough, which is high grass. I've been there many and, times. <laughs> me too. <laughs> and uh, I swung a little harder out of that, and something happened to my hip. Uh, it didn't pop or anything, but it did hurt, and I could not walk straight i had to limp uh and thought i was going to have to quit the round uh and as i i continued on i limped for a few holes and then it got a little better and i was able to finish but I, my question is could that have been a dislocation uh it's several months later now i don't have any problems when i play golf i don't feel it at all but i walk in the mornings uh at a quick pretty quick pace and i do feel it it's not like a sharp pain but there is a nagging sort of pain that uh, is associated with it could i have dislocated that and if i did will it just be able to go back together without a problem yeah there's there's a lot of different things that is a so that that hip socket is a ball and joint socket so it's a very tight socket if you think about it in comparison to our shoulder Shoulder's not that. I mean, it's like a modified ball and joint, but it's not really a ball and joint um, because it has more mobility. So although the hip does give us mobility, it's sort of locked in there. So it's locked in there by tendons uh, and ligaments. And those, depending on if you, you know, like you said, in a motion where you're, you're you know, basically hitting out of the rough and probably just hit a little bit too fat and just sort of stuck through there or it was a lot more pressure, those things can tear. And certainly they can cause a lot of problems immediately. If it's a tendon um, or a ligament, um, sometimes if it's a partial tear of it, they can can heal up pretty good. Now, several different things can happen to make that joint dislocate, but it is it takes a lot to get it to dislocate unless you already have damage to it. So... Um, I, it would be very unlikely for it to be dislocated out of socket and then immediately come back in just because, that's again, it's a tight joint. A shoulder can pop in and out all the time, and it's most of the time it's pretty easy to get that back in, um, depending on the, the laxity, the person's laxity of those tendons and, and, uh, 
and uh, ligaments. But it's less likely, particularly with that that motion, that you could have done that. Now, you could have torn like the labrum, so that's like the cartilage that um, that lines the the bone uh, between the femur. That's the the upper leg bone and the pelvis that where it's in that joint space. Um, those don't heal up as well, and they usually are there for a while. So if you're feeling it later on, you may have a small tear there, or you might have a couple of things that happened all at once. I suspect it's probably just a tendon that was partially torn or a ligament. And those sideways movements, particularly as we get older, if you're not doing those, you know, and, and hitting out of the rough, I get it. The worst thing is, like, if a heavy rain and you hit something sort of fat, and I've done the same thing, and everything just stops. And um, that causes a lot of tearing to those, a lot of pressure on those joints. But if it's okay while you're walking and you're still playing golf without any problem, if it's just a little bit sore, I probably wouldn't, you know, I probably wouldn't think anything was wrong with it. Best way to look at that, x-rays help some, but they only tell us about the bony parts of the joint. But an MRI would would really show us um, the ligaments and tendons and all those cartilage surfaces. Most of the time we can't just jump to the MRI just because it's expensive and there may be other things that we can do first. But um, that's that's if it continues or if it gets worse, that's certainly something I would do uh, to get it checked out. But uh, my last question to you, Tom, is did you make the shot? <laughs> uh, I missed the putt. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, and since I'm not in the studio this morning, we are re-airing some recent phone calls with your medical questions. Good morning, Roger. Good morning. I've been diagnosed with a UTI by a nurse practitioner. Very kind and good, and I got a good shot of something in the tail and also headed for today to get some uh, antibiotics uh, at the pharmacy. But I forgot to tell her that one of my symptoms developing over the last week or so, a little over a week, was not only the just frantic, instantaneous need to urinate, and I wouldn't make it to the toilet, uh, or if I was outside, I could prepare pretty well if it wasn't too public. But I mean instantaneous, uncontrollable, no way to control it. I just would begin urinating. At the same time, however... I realized I was developing a bowel problem that uh, loose bowels, not 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 runny necessarily, not not liquid, but very loose, very very uh, common accompanied by by liquid, and uh, and it also was instantaneous and unable to to be controlled, and that would be uh, I wouldn't be able to make it to uh, a toilet. And so now I'm I'm getting better, feeling better. My fever was I had a lot of fever. Don't have much fever right now, <clears throat> and so the antibiotic that I got shot with is working, and and I'm getting less burning on urination and all that. So it's getting. I think the antibiotic is working on the on the UTI. If that's what it is. But I forgot to tell her about this other. Symptom, and my question is, does that accompany a classic UTI? Yeah, that, that's a great description, Roger, of some of the associated symptoms of a UTI. So uh, UTI, for all those other people out there, means urinary tract infection. So that's anywhere in the urinary tract. So it can be 
from your bladder all the way up to your kidneys. And uh, because of an infection is irritable to the tissues that are, are affected by it, it can cause spasms. And that's probably what's causing the symptoms that you're having. So we call that urgency, where you have this intense urge to relieve your bladder, and sometimes you don't make it. Same kind of thing can be happening with your bowels just because those uh, that's a pretty close proximity to the infection where it's where it's happening. And most of the time that gets better just with treating the infection itself. There are some medications that can help with that, um, but it's been my experience if you start to treat with the antibiotics within about two to three days, four to five at the most, then you usually see that. Uh, urgency and that bladder spasm to decrease just because you're reducing the infection. But yes, it's a that can be a common symptom with a urinary tract infection. And usually you don't necessarily have to treat the spasm part of it because sometimes those drugs can have a lot of side effects. Just treating the infection itself will make that better. But if it's not, you do need to call your physician or nurse practitioner back and say, hey, I'm having these other symptoms. I thought they were related to the to the uh, to the UTI, but now I'm still having them. I'm 74, but the only problem with my gird is, I guess it was a problem, I do not experience any heartburn at all, but the acidic level is unbearable. I burp and belch all day long, and now have ex- developed, I mean, just through my research on Dr. Google, is acidic labyrinthitis, and I'm extremely dizzy with vertigo. And I'm curious, what would be your remedy for it? I've taken Pepsi, and I was reading about Pepsi, and I also take uh, cetirizine. And I guess those two are two drugs that will work together to, to as an antihistamine to help that. Do you have any solutions or suggestions as to what I can do, please, sir? Yeah. So, uh, you know, GERD is one of those things that uh, causes a lot of people some problems, and it can be a combination of sort of how our GI tracts put together, and it can also be other things too, even infections in your stomach. So, if it's not getting better with either, you know, changing the foods that you eat or changing the amount that you eat, sometimes if we eat too much at one sitting, all that that has to that pressure has to go somewhere, and sometimes it can come back up through the esophagus, and you get that sort of acidic taste, and uh, it can either be in the back of your throat, as you mentioned. So we do treat it, you know, with medications to reduce the amount of acid in the stomach. So Pepsid's one of those things like Prilosec, Omeprazole, those are those are over-the-counter medications too that work a little bit differently, but pretty much to decrease the amount of acid. If you, if that's not working after about two weeks, then you may need to see your physician about it because again, there may be uh, an infection with something called H. pylori. It's a bacteria that likes to live in your stomach. And it can uh, can interfere with the lining of the stomach in a certain way that that acid can cause you more problems, even if you don't have classic symptoms of it. And uh, one step from there would actually be seeing a GI doctor. And sometimes they have to go down with a little lighted scope from above uh, down through your esophagus to make sure you don't have other things going on. Sometimes it can be problems with the esophagus and the way that it's working mechanically. Sometimes you could have a big hiatal hernia. So if it's not going away with the over-the-counter medications after two two uh, weeks, 
uh, two to three weeks or so, I would probably contact your, your doctor and say, hey, I'm having some bad problems here. They may want to treat you with some prescription medications to decrease that acid level a little bit further. Um, but after that, it's pretty much, you know, testing for that uh, infection and maybe even seeing a GI doctor. Dr. Jimmy, I have gone through all those steps. Oh, okay. I have gone, to, I have gone through the doctor at GI, and uh, it's still persistent. I have had the upper GI. I've had the test for SIBO. I've had all kind of tests. I've lost 45 pounds because I'm not able to. Oh, goodness. Did they put you on like a prescription? Because Pepsid's good, but it's not quite as strong as some other things like... Oh, yeah. Yeah. I've gone through all of the P-drugs, the Prilocin, uh the Protonics. I've gone through all of them. The Dexalin, the... I I mean, I'm aware of all of them. Yep, you name them all. Yeah. Yeah, I don't. You know, the only thing I can think of is you may want a second opinion from a GI doctor just to see if there's anything else they can give you because, in okay. partic- particularly with weight loss, because there are some GI doctors that sort of specialize in that area, um, and if they haven't looked for things like a hiatal hernia, they probably would have seen that and and noticed that. But that may be something else that they might consider. Let's go to Caroline from Tuscaloosa, I believe. And I'm covered with basal cell years. So I've had a lot of Mohs um, surgeries. My question is, my dermatologist in Tuscaloosa really wants me to be on the external chemotherapy. I tried it once, and I also have psoriatic arthritis, and I found that I just couldn't even function after 10 or 12 days. The fatigue was so extreme, and I couldn't, I didn't understand what it was until I looked it up and realized that you can get fatigue with the chemo. So my question is this, how serious is it? He really wants me to do the chemo again. Um, and I really don't want to do it because I'm trying to work. I'm retired, but I still need to work. And uh, how serious is it if I don't do the chemo and just treat one, you know, issue at a time? Yeah. Yeah, some, there are some individuals for various reasons that may be more susceptible to getting those. You know, I mentioned earlier, they're usually self, they're in one spot. Of course, they can come back in the same spot, and after you've gotten one, you're at risk for another one, particularly in those areas that have more skin, uh, sun exposure. But in some individuals, and this may be a genetic cause, or it may be another reason, they may be on some uh, another medication like an immunosuppressive medication that's putting them at risk for that. We know that a lot of the medications we use for transplant, for instance, can put you at risk for, for multiple basal cells. Uh, basal cell carcinoma, so or squamous cell too, but basically, um, so chemo might be an option. I would just talk to him about it and say, okay, what? Because he's going to have they're going to have the numbers to give you to say, okay, if you take the chemo, it's going to cut down your risk by what percent? And if it's a large percent, maybe you do want to you know consider that or a different agent if there is one available. And that's not an area I know enough about to tell you right now without reading further. 
But if it's only, you know, five, ten percent decrease, then maybe that's a maybe that's a, a a good reason to not do it, as you stated, to just deal with the individual lesions that come up. So um, that's the way I would approach it uh, if it were me, because I get it. I mean, uh, you know, certainly if you're decreasing your risk and that's probably what they're looking at as a bottom line. But if it's impacting your lifestyle where you can't do the things that you need to do, then that's may not be worth it. Well, that's the way I feel. But uh, I'm so accustomed to fighting this that it just seems like no big deal to have them cut out or burned out. Yeah. It's almost like, you know, like you're you're a a warrior or a knight and and you are being equipped to go out and fight a foreign army, okay? And uh-huh. and you, it, the armor, this being the doctor gives you a sword that you can barely pick up. Right. Uh it's it may That's be right. very useful if you can get it uh moving in the right direction. But it's not, you know, it's going to take a lot out of you. So it may not be, even though it may be a very powerful weapon for you individually, it might not be the best one. Right. And I appreciate that because I just needed a second opinion. He's a great doctor. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, we sometimes I do the same thing. I'm like, okay, this is going to be very powerful. But. The most powerful medication, if a patient can't take it for some reason, and that right. could be multiple reasons, it's ineffective at that point. That's right. That's right. He had to shut me down the last time because I, I just couldn't even get out of bed. Yeah, yeah. So I, I would be very honest about that and just ask what the numbers are. This is Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart. But I'm not in the studio this morning, so it's a best-of program. You're hearing some phone calls from recent shows. We're going to go to Gail from Crystal Springs. Good morning, Gail. Hi, good morning. My question to you is, I'm not a big water drinker in the mornings, and I take my pill and wait 30, 45 minutes before I eat anything. But could I possibly take my thyroid pill with orange juice? Yeah, I think uh, that's so, you know, we've talked about like optimally what to do. Right. So I do have I tell my patients, OK, look, if if you if if orange juice works better for you, let's do that and let's see what the levels are, you know, on the blood when we when we check those after making a change like that. So, you know, six weeks or so. Sure. And if it's if we're not given enough and usually that's with a high TSH, we'll increase the dose. But generally speaking, you can overcome some of those inter- some of the interactions. Now, I certainly wouldn't be saying to people, "Hey, take your calcium supplement with levothyroxine or synthroid." That's a bad idea because you won't get any or very little synthroid in your body if you do that. But if you change from water to to orange juice, I would say that's probably okay. And then we can check the levels, and then we can make adjustments in the amount that you're giving. Uh, that's probably the best thing to do. That's a great idea. And you might tell the the lady that just called that I could not take the, um, the, I couldn't take the generic. generic. Yeah. Yeah. That's a common one. And my Medicare picked it right up. 
Exactly. And that's that's why I said, you know, it's really important to check out which Part D is in dog plan that you have, because that is um, there are many out there and they're all a little different. And it's and your pharmacist is going to be the person that can help you out. So if you just say, hey, you know, it's that time of year, I'm thinking about changing plans for next year. Could you plug it in with X plan or Y plans? Or could you look at my, a lot of the pharmacists that are better at it to say, go to the pharmacy, go to your pharmacy, choose the most, the oldest person there uh, and say, hey, can you help me out with this um, in person and say, you know, I, I want to know if you can look at my medications and sort of find this out. Now, a few clinics, our clinics like this at, at uh, UMMC that has, um, um, our MedPeds clinic has it. We have a clinical pharmacist with us, and she always has uh, pharmacy residents and students with her. So we have a, that resource in our clinic that can do that. But that's very common is I'll say, hey, can you look at their medication list for me and to find out which plan might be the best one? Uh, but your local pharmacist has the same skill to do that, and they, they should be able to do it. But that they can help out, and like you said, you may find a plan that is just fine for your medications. But it, don't just tell them one medication. Tell them every medication that you're prescribed because you got to think about the total bill, right? That's exactly right. Yep. Yeah. yeah. But that's good information. Yeah. I would say try it with orange juice, see how it works, and if, if the, uh, the amount needs to be, the, the dose of it needs to be changed, that's what I would do. Good morning. Um, nice to talk to you, Dr. Jimmy. Absolutely. I have a question. Um, I have asked two different dermatologists, and nobody has given me an answer. Um, I get these little white, I don't even know, it's a waxy substance. It's, it's very white, and they usually pop up around my eyes. And they don't go away. It's not like, um, you know, a pimple or something, and it's not inflamed. And they won't go away unless I open the skin up and pop them out. And it's a kind of a hard, white substance. I don't know if it's genetic or if it's something with my diet or I don't know what they are or what to do about them. No one has given me any answers yet. Let me ask a couple of questions. So. Are they located on the more on the lower eyelid towards your nose? Actually, no. I okay. get them on the upper eyelid. I get them on the lower eyelid. I have one right now that's out towards the uh, outer corner of my right eye. And these are very small, um, like like head head of a pin. Uh, or 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 two or three pins. But gotcha. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, a couple of different things. Anytime somebody says waxy substance, there's a couple of things that that normally it could be. And the right around the eyes and the nose, there's uh, some glands that make sebum, and sometimes those can get plugged. Everybody has different size, you know. Like we have, we're different heights. We have different sizes to a lot of our pores sometimes. Um, and it sounds like that's probably what's going on. That's these are getting plugged now. I don't know for certain, you know, what those, again, dermatology is one of those things over the radio can be sort of derm, uh, a little dangerous, but you you said you've seen a couple of dermatologists that have looked at that? Um, yes, I've gone to the dermatologist mostly for other reasons, and mm-hmm. then I'll say, hey, will you look at these things? Because they're really not 
it's more of a cosmetic issue to me. You know, they just right. don't look right. good. And, and I, I've even had them up right under my eyebrow. So, I yeah. mean, they're not always, you know, right, right near the opening of my eye, but, but a lot of times they are. And nothing, um, uh, nothing along the hairline. Or around your ears? No. Okay. Nope. So, no. Some of the, what you're describing sounds more like seborrhea, um, and it can, uh, you know, usually right around the eyebrows and the eyes, it can cause some problems. Uh, treatment is fairly simple with that. I'm going to say I would get a one more dermatologist separate from your dermatologist to take a look at it. Because if yeah. it's seborrhea, it's pretty easy to treat, um, and you can even use some over-the-counter stuff like uh, selenium sulfide, which is in uh, Celsin Blue. Um, maybe something that you may, you may want to just use as a wash a little bit around that area. Be careful not to get in your eyes. But it uh, sometimes, if that's what it is, that's an easy fix for it. But it, it's complicated enough in what you're describing that it may need to be looked at before you do that by another dermatologist. It doesn't sound, I'm not hearing any red flags that this is anything that's dangerous, but as you said, particularly around our eyes, I mean, cosmetically, yeah. that's that's a big deal. Yeah, and and most of the time they look at it, take a quick glance and just say, oh, that's nothing. You know, and I'm like, oh, Tell I them want to know what When they is. say that, exactly, say, oh, no, 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 you have to name it. You have to tell me what that is. <laughs> yeah. At least, and I guess because I'm there paying for something else, you know, they're just, they just kind of blow it off. Look, one of, the, one of the things that, that we as doctors do sometimes is we because we see – we're looking for the things that are more complicated, like the dermatologist is looking for basal cell carcinoma or squamous cell right. carcinoma or those kinds of things. And you're right. Sometimes we don't um, – and you may – hopefully you don't have any of that – but it's just as important to say, oh, this is what that is. Um, that's a hemangioma on your skin, and it's nothing to worry about. We can deal with it if you have a you know problem with it, but it may just be a capillary hemangioma. That's not what you have, but um, you know that's just an example. But yeah, I'd, I'd have them either name that. I, I really do have one of those also. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so I know what that got a ton is. of those, but um, it's. I think it may be worthwhile just visiting one more dermatologist to, to get their opinion and focus in on that. We're going to go to John from Mobile. Good morning, John. I had a question about um, something that's really bothering me, really painful. It's um, during these winter months, I'm getting split skin and uh, chafing, I mean, really severe, on the palms and working surf uh, on my palms and working surfaces of my fingers. And uh, it's just not going away no matter what I do. You know, I use lotions and uh, creams and uh, e- even um, prescription creams. And um, it doesn't seem to go away. All I need to do is to, uh, try to pick up, say, a, a loaded laundry basket and whatever progress my uh, hands are made in healing is <laughs> undone mm-hmm. right away. And right now, for example, I've got my, you know, some of the splits wrapped up in, what is it, Curad waterproof adhesive tape, mm-hmm. which might work, but, um, you know, it looks kind of funny when you have uh, all <laughs> right. the stuff on your hand. Right. So um, I was wondering if you'd recommend uh, a different course of action. Also, also, um, 
there's a product I know of called New Skin that you may have heard of, mm-hmm. and I wondered if that would be helpful in covering these things so that they're not so extremely sensitive and painful uh, and would last a day or two until I need to reapply. Yeah, and this is a common thing uh, that affects people during the winter months. So this uh, it most probably is dishydrotic eczema. Um, now, there, you can have a couple other things that can cause this, but it, typically if it's in the winter months, this is a, a common problem that can happen on your hands. And as a type of eczema, really it's sort of a, a autoimmune, uh, hyperimmune system problem. Uh, where your um, your body's ramping up its immune system in a way that's causing the skin problems and causing it to be cracked. The skin on our hands, on particularly on the palms, it's what's called keratinized skin, and it's very thick. And it has to be that way because if you think about it, that interacts with more things, our hands and our feet, than any other part of our body on a repetitive uh, basis. And it needs to be uh, to be very, you know, if you put the same pressure that you put on on the palms of your hands on your arm, for instance, and had the same shear pressures and compression compressive pressures on it, you'd have problems. You'd have an ulcer or a tear in the skin there. And if there are any kind of disruptions to that, you can get a crack in your fingers, even like a, a, a cut or something like that. That can can make it really hard to, that interferes with the, some of the processes we have. Now, normally that, you know, you've mentioned some of the things we usually treat with that, like the, the, what we call emollients and that's sort of the lotions or the creams that can keep that, that skin from drying out. And then the steroids and uh, there's several different steroid potencies that you can use. The problem, particularly on the palms, is that that skin is so thick that it's hard for those uh, medications and lotions to penetrate deep enough to where they have an effect, which is probably why you're talking about an occlusive, uh, even like a glove. Like some people will put this on at night uh, to try to heal this up and put the steroid on and then put a glove on on top of that, like a waterproof glove. That may be some of the next step, and that way you're not walking around with it, uh, you know, during the day. Um, looking, looking like you've got, you know, like, like the mummy walking out of the pyramid. Uh, but, um, but that may help it penetrate at least during the daytime. Now gloves can help to protect your skin from getting dried out, particularly if that's part of your normal routine at work or whatever you're doing, the drier it gets. And sometimes it can even be thermally related to like to the cold, then that's going to increase the amount of problems that you have. One next step, I would try using some of those steroid creams at night uh, or ointments and uh, and then put it on first and then just get you some, some plain old nitrile rubber gloves. Uh, you can get those at a hardware store or a pharmacy and uh, put those on at night and see if that doesn't help. Sometimes we'll do that for eczema too, and this sounds crazy, but for kids and adults who have really bad eczema, we'll tell them to take a tepid bath, not a hot bath, get out of the water, put on the, the prescription medication, and then wrap it in cellophane. But gloves would work great on the hands. That's probably the, the best way to do it. You're listening to Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, but I am not in the studio this morning, so we are replaying some recent phone calls to the program. 
What's your question this morning? Have you heard of a... Now, they sell this at a vape shop. It, it's called HHC. It, it's supposed to take... It's a vape. Uh-huh. It takes the place... It's, supposedly, it's legal. I don't know. You know, I just heard about it the other day. So it's in the same family. It is a little bit different than THC, which is the active ingredient in marijuana. Um, but HHC is, um, it's a little bit different, but it is one that causes some of the same types of, of things, the euphoria that you have, you know, the, all this, all the things that you can sort of get high on, uh, it can do the same thing. The other question people ask about HHC is, will it show up on drug tests? The answer is, yeah, it can. Uh, so I'd be a little careful with that. So you can be impaired with it. It's not as, you know, CBD is the other thing that patients ask me about. And while CBD is unlikely, if it doesn't have significant levels of THC in with it, it's unlikely to, you know, cause some of the same symptoms of, of euphoria and that high that you get from THC. It can still test positive on drug screens, too. So, uh, yeah, HHC, I'd be sort of careful with that um, because – and I'm, I wasn't aware if it's, you know, legal to sell like that. Um, yeah, it's in the bait shops now. Gotcha. Yeah. yeah, I would uh, – There's and there's no real evidence that it's any safer than THC either. So I'd be a little bit careful about right. that. Good morning, Rachel. Good morning, uh, Dr. Jimmy. And so my question is – um, does nicotine gum carry any of the risks that uh, other tobaccos that you uh, might use, snuff and uh, chewing tobacco and that kind of thing? Yeah, excellent question. So nicotine is a very powerful substance that, uh, you know, I don't know, know a lot of people to get off of, you know, to sort of transition uh, off of smoking uh, it's a very useful thing to do that so that you're not smoking and inhaling all the bad uh, carcinogenic uh, things that are in cigarettes or if you're trying to, you know, getting off of, of chewing or dipping. Um, so nicotine in and of itself is not going to cause cancer. It's all the other stuff that's in there, but it can have systemic effects on your body. Um, depending on how much you're using, uh, which is you always want to use, you know, nicotine gum comes in sort of a standardized uh, doses of that nicotine. So you can sort of predict the the uh, delivery of it. Uh, but you want to start with the smallest dose that, that you can. Or if you start with a higher dose, you know, after a few weeks, maybe cut the dose in half uh, of what you're using. Because it can increase your blood pressure. And if it increases it enough for long periods of time, then it can put you at risk for cardiovascular disease. Um, Uh But as far as cancer risk, though, I'm not aware of any studies that have shown that the nicotine gum increases your risk of cancer for oral cancers inside the mouth or uh, lung cancer in and of itself. It's all that other stuff that's in there. But Uh it's a really good delivery system for getting nicotine in your body. That's why it works so well, and that's why... You know, for smoking, certainly a, a great way to deliver that substance to the body. Not the not the the lungs don't appreciate it, but if you're trying to get stuff in the body, that's one good way to do it. But it gets even more absorbed through that uh, mucosa in your mouth, so that's why it works. But I would, if you're if you're doing that right now and you're worried about, you know, you are noticing your blood pressure is higher. Um, 
pretty easy thing to do. Just take your blood pressure about 15 minutes after chewing the gum, and you can probably see an increase in it. Then you may want to cut the dose down to the lowest dose that, that you have, and then hopefully wean off of it over time. We're going to go to Terry in Tupelo. Good morning, Terry. Hey, Dr. Jimmy. I just wanted to give you a success story. You, all, you only usually hear about the bad things and never get to follow up and hear about the good things. All right. So uh, I had talked to you about a month ago, and I was scheduled to have uh, – there's a big word for it. There's also initials. But what it amounts to is they take the disc out of the C5, C6, and C7. Yeah, yeah. And and uh, what is that? There's an acronym, AD something other. But anyway, you, you know, I have to um, look it up too. I'll, I'll uh, you know, I'm not a surgeon, so it's a. Uh, I just refer to it as a discectomy. So basically, they're taking the disc out and they're probably stabilizing the spine. But it does have a long they, acronym. You're right. They they are, and uh, man, I'm telling you, it's like I got a new lease on life. Yeah, that's great. That's great. You know, yeah. it's, it's when you beat a when you when you beat a mule long enough, I guess I get used to getting a beating because my arm was so tight, but I didn't really realize it. And after the surgery, my whole arm just relaxed. Yeah, yeah, that's my, my left arm. I'm glad you had that outcome, Terry. And it's interesting. Like I think when we talk about spinal surgery and back surgery in particular. Uh, that uh, lower back surgeries can have a lot more complications. But usually in the neck, it's actually, you would think it would be a harder place to, you know, to, to, uh, you know, to get around and to do what you need to do from a surgeon's standpoint to relieve a lot of that pressure on nerves or to stabilize the neck. It's actually a better outcome with neck surgeries. And it, some people are scared off a little bit because the access tends to be from the front um, so they actually go through the front of the neck and make a small incision to do that. But most of the time, um, you know, with a good surgeon at the helm, uh, knowing what they're doing, have a lot of experience, this is the kind of response that you see. And you're right. Sometimes we go through a lot of pain and we're like, you know, I just don't think I'm going to get any better. I'm sort of used to this. And then you really don't know until you have that surgery how impactful that can be and Terry, what was your recovery like? Was it like a, a pretty sudden, or did you have to do some physical therapy? No, no, no physical therapy. I didn't even wear a neck brace. Um, the biggest issue that I had was my traps in my shoulder were sore. Yeah. And that soreness has now subsided. Yeah. But I have to give a shout-out to Dr. Jason Stacy. He was the surgeon that did this. And, and it's funny you mentioned the scar. It's about three inches. And I asked the nurse, I said, you know, will this scar stay on my neck? And she said, well, if you put vitamin E on it every day. And I said, no, 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 you don't understand. I don't want to lose a scar. Chicks dig scars. <laughs> you, yeah, that, may, that scar may turn into a different story. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> yeah. yeah. You should see the shark. That's right. That's right. Got me on my neck. You should see what happened to him. Well, Terry, thank you for calling and giving us that success story. You're right. We, it's always good to hear that, and it might encourage some of our other listeners to uh, pursue that pathway if they're having some neck and uh, shoulder and, and arm pain or weakness. Good 
We're going to go to Susan in South Haven. I have a question about blood oxygen levels. Uh, last year, I bought an oximeter because it was supposed to be a better way to see if you were developing COVID than temperature or other symptoms. What's happened is, as the weather's gotten hot and humid, uh, I wake up in the morning and I feel great. And then by afternoon, I, I'm having trouble standing up straight and I'm exhausted and I just fall asleep. So out of curiosity, I checked my blood oxygen level when I woke up this morning and it was like 98 and my heart rate was about 60. But Yesterday, when I checked it, when, when I woke up from one of my afternoon long naps, my blood oxygen level was, was fluctuating between 92 and 94, and my heart rate was 70. Uh, is there any way I can get my blood oxygen level up? It's pretty easy to get an oxygen monitor. We call those O2 sat monitors or saturation, and they use a certain wavelength of light when you stick your finger in there to calculate how much percent of oxygenation of your blood there is. So th there are some limitations to those. We had one of our patients that bought one and she said, my oxygen saturation is 60%, but they were com talking in complete sentences and weren't short of breath. Well, they were taking it through fingernail polish. So it doesn't work that way. So you have to have, you know, clear views all the way down, even if you, uh, even if somebody tells you differently. But in your case, I would say this is normal from an oxygen standpoint. So our bodies only need about 90 to 92% of the blood saturation um, to, to adequately transport oxygen. Now, of course, if you have other things going on like chronic lung disease or heart failure or pneumonia, uh, you mentioned COVID. One of the complications was, you know, it can, can be lung infection. All of those are reasons why your O2 uh, levels, uh, saturation levels can decrease. The, the variations that you described in both heart rate and in oxygen levels are normal throughout the day. Uh, we tend to have lower pulse rates first thing in the morning and they go up during the day. And humidity doesn't really change the oxygen content in the in the air that we breathe, uh, nor does heat appreciably. So that really doesn't affect that. What it does affect, though, is how hard your body's having to work because of that excess heat. The best way is to condition yourself, just like an athlete would, to uh, utilize the oxygen that's there. And the reason why your heart rate may be going up is because your body's having to work harder, not because it's getting less oxygen levels, but because downstream at the muscle layer, it's not conditioned enough to do that. And if you think about it, this makes perfect sense. If you take a, a high school person who's never, uh, never run a race and they suddenly are training for a race in, on the track team, uh, the first time that they start to run, they're going to be a whole lot more shorter breath. They're going to breathe a lot faster. Their heart rate's going to be higher. As they train... They're really training their muscles how to utilize oxygen better and how to utilize energy better in different systems of management of that. And as they train, their heart rate's going to come down and also their respiratory rate's going to come down. But the O2 levels you mentioned are perfectly normal. 92% is in that normal range. Even if it gets down to 90, sometimes that's fine. But it's not really modulated from an oxygen standpoint by heat or humidity. But that does make your body work a lot harder during those times 
from an exercise standpoint. You lose a lot more. You have to exert a whole lot more energy, uh, as you said, in the in the summertime than you do in the cooler months. So that's sort of a physiologic explanation for that. Um, O2 monitors, again, good things. You just have to know what they're useful for, what they're not useful for. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, Professor of Pediatrics and Internal Medicine at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Southern Remedy is a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting Think Radio, and funding is provided in part by a grant from the University of Mississippi Medical Center and support from listeners just like you. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand.